Little ditty about Jack and Diane. Two American kids growing up in the heartland. Keep going. It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, episode 60. Lovely wife Lauren is here because we are going to discuss one of the most memorable instances or mentions, utterances of food and drink in the entire Western canon, I would say, but probably more realistically in a in a in a American pop rock song, right? And that song is Jack and Diane by John Mellencamp, Johnny uh, Cougar. Yeah, excuse me, madam. Uh, I believe you mean Johnny Cougar. <laughs> he changed all of his, uh, like on Spotify, when you play the song, it says John Mellencamp. Damn right it does. Proud of his Dutch heritage. He's a professional. Professional Dutchman. <laughs> he's not a young man in tight blue jeans in the back of a pickup truck anymore. No, Hopefully there's no debutantes in the back seat of his car. <laughs> um, Deb, do you know it only just in this very second occurred to me that that is the word he's saying? Really? I don't know what I thought it De- was. Diane's a debutante in the back of Jack's car because uh, they fuck. Jesus Christ. I, I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know. What is this podcast rated? I, 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 you're grown-ups, whatever. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Uh, I think we're going to talk about lyrics first and then music second, because there's a lot that we want to say about this song. But first, we want to talk about... Um, I feel like we should tell them why we're talking about yes, it. Yes, like, sure. Where the hell this came from. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I don't know if this is what you think, but like most of the fun time that we... Like quality time, I think, that we spend together... Well, no, that's not true. One of my most careful. One of my most cherished times spent with you is among the many. <laughs> among the many. One among several. <laughs> is when we're driving in the car and I put on some random Spotify playlist. And when a song comes on, either we spontaneously start talking about the song, either you bring like your music theory nerdery to it and start talking about like all the music theory nerd stuff or we just talk about like the cultural background of the song and the singer and blah 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 or sometimes I just flat out ask you do you think this is a good song and then you like give me a really thoughtful answer about it and and they're just really good conversations and anyway while we were in the car the other day with the children in the back um, I was listening to a Spotify summer playlist and Jack and Diane came on and we just sort of had this moment where we were like this is a really good song, and I realize it's deeply cliched, but it's a really good song. Also, we have a special attachment to it. Yeah, that also serves as um, our bona fides for talking, <laughs> like our, our our expertise uh, <laughs> for talking about this subject. Is that we both lived in Indiana for a while for college? Yeah, um, um, I lived in Indiana in Bloomington, Indiana, in particular for seven years. Bloomington is also the home of one Johnny Cougar Mellencamp. Yes. So um, I think what I will do is let me let me do this in chronological order because everything works better in the form of a story. Okay. okay. So one Johnny Cougar was actually named uh, John Mellencamp, born in Seymour, Indiana uh, in 52, something like that. You will see and the sign on Interstate 65. 65. 65. Oh, hell yeah. 65. I always mix up 65 and 64 because 64 is in Louis- Louisville. Um Anyway, anyway, they have a sign. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Seymour, Indiana. All right. For the because think about the global reach of the Adam Ragusea family of media pro- uh, properties, and like, how do you explain Indiana to like somebody in Indonesia? You know. 
um, Indiana is known as the Crossroads of America because it is um, in the Midwest region and many rail lines go through there um, and they all crossroad in Terre Haute. <laughs> Several cities claim uh, the, uh, the distinction. Indianapolis probably has the most solid claim. But also, the crossroads of X is what you call yourself when you are not an actual destination, right? When all you are is a place in between other things, the best you can do is say, hey, I'm the place between the other places. And that's what Indiana does. And moreover, that's what Seymour, Indiana does. Seymour, Indiana's literal uh, slogan is like, Crossroads of Indiana, I believe it is. Interesting. It's the crossroads of Indiana, and Indiana is the crossroads of America. But Indiana is known for corn and mm. basketball. And trains. And Indy 500, the Indy 500. And the Indy 500. And lots and lots of trains. And John Green, the author. And lots of settlements mm. that built up around railroad crossings. Mm -hmm. And this is the best fact that I learned in the smidgen of research that I did for this episode. But Seymour, uh, one of the founding c citizens of Seymour, was also a state senator. And, uh, you know, nothing was happening in this, his little town of Seymour where he owned a bunch of land. It was just a rail crossing and mm -hmm. nothing was getting built up there. So in his capacity as a state senator, this, you know, Jebediah Seymour, whatever his name was, uh, let's go with Jebediah Seymour. So Jebediah Seymour goes into the Indiana State Senate and he gets a bill passed that re legally requires all train engineers passing through Indiana to stop at all crossings. Interesting. Rail to rail crossings wow. and all rail to rail crossings, which ensured that trains would have to stop in Seymour, Indiana, where Jebediah Seymour owned a whole bunch of land that suddenly became more valuable for Got development. And it. that's how you get Seymour, Indiana, hometown of John Mellencamp. We'll say, we we'll use his real name for now. We'll okay. just say, yeah. I have a question. Yes. Because <laughs> I did not do any research for this. Mm. Is Cougar his actual middle name? No, 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 okay. no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. He, he is, his name is John Mellencamp. And he, he went of with proud John Dutch Cougar. heritage. No, he got with like you know one of those those like slimy producers that they warn you about. Oh right, I remember the, this from behind the music. Now. All the behind the music <laughs> episodes have a have a character like this, yes. right? A character like this. I always imagine they speak with a dramatic you know kind of Long Island accent <laughs> as they're screwing you over. Um, but <laughs> they. So anyway, so yeah. Mellencamp, it won't sell. Mellencamp, it won't sell. <laughs> you got to call yourself Johnny Cougar. And according to John Mellencamp himself, um, he didn't know about the the nom de plume until he looked at the printed copy of his That's first right. album. That's right. It He's was like, said, who the fuck, who the fuck is, is Johnny this? Cougar? <laughs> That's you, kid. That's you. That's you, kid. Now go out and sell it, which did not happen at all. Um, so he was he was sort of a, a ne'er do well in Seymour, which you know it's a nowheresville in southern Indiana, um, with just a bunch of farmland around it. It's a far, you know it's a it's the center to it's a locus of a bunch of farm area around it, and. He grew up there. Ended up going to college at Vincennes University, mm -hmm. which I believe was two years. Is it still two year now? No, okay. It was two year then, um, but I think he flunked out anyway. And then he went back to Seymour, uh, where he was a telephone. He worked for the telephone company. Oh. He was a lineman for the county. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't think I don't. I think he installed the phone. This is back when like a man had to come install a phone in your house. A, li a lineman is an electrician. What's that? A lineman is an electrician. It's not a phone guy. Well, then that that song doesn't work. 
because he hears her voice through the wire. Oh. Yeah, it's a telephone wire. Well, I've always thought a line a lineman. I think it's a a man who works on lines, telephones among them. Okay. Telephony among it. Okay. I'm sure there will be people in the comments who will be happy to tell us. Okay. I mean, I can't imagine that the man who wrote the song about how MacArthur Park is melting like a cake in the dark would make a mistake like that in another song that he wrote. Sure. But um, Anyway, Johnny Cougar. <laughs> Johnny Cougar. So Johnny Cougar, uh, John, yes, yeah, so Johnny Cougar has a, a few albums, like three or four albums that sell nothing. And eventually he gets with a, uh, a producer named Don Gaiman, who is a really interesting guy in his own story, uh, right. Don Gaiman was one of the early kind of road engineers in the history of rock music in America. And he ended up sort of developing the prototypical, the archetypal, um, uh, house PA system for a for rock band. Like he sort of did that because he was like a stereo tinkerer as a kid and he ended up building it into a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Stephen Stills gave him a job uh, as a producer. Of Crosby, Stills, Nash. No, of, of a horrible Stephen Stills solo record that no one knows. <laughs> uh, and left Mr. Don Gaiman thinking like, do I, should I really be a record producer? Because I seem to be bad at it. But no, it's just Stephen Stills and cocaine, right? Like, um, <laughs> that was the story. That was back the story then. back then, you know? So so Don Gaiman uh, goes to, uh, gets a job at a, uh, uh, at a studio in Miami, a very famous studio where I'm, the name escapes me, but a million records that you've heard of uh, were produced in Miami. And uh, John Cougar got a, you know, a, 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 went to that studio to work with Don Felder, who was a much more famous you know, producer, but ended up getting with Tom Gaiman. Tom Gaiman is the co-writer of this song, Jack and Diane, which we are discussing. Um, this is on the point. This is all to say that this is was he the accredited album. co-writer. Yeah, he's a credited co-writer. That's interesting because when I was looking it up, it um, it just said John Mellencamp. Oh, really? Oh, he might be the Wikipedia. I page. might have seen. I might have seen a co-producer credit. Okay. Okay. Because um, yeah, but I regardless think... from the from the story that they tell, sure. he sure deserves a co-writer. Okay. Credit. Okay. If you've heard the demo and you can hear the demo online, that is he? the one who came up with the breakdown um no the, that was the that is mick ronson yes, yes. he of the spiders from mars That's david right. bowie's band who yeah. came in and played on this album this was like john mellencamp's make or break album he was either going to become a star with this album or he was going to have to go back to seymour and be a lineman for the county <laughs> which it may or may not involve phones <laughs> <laughs> okay but it would probably involve singing wichita lineman right <laughs> like he would totally have had a night job singing songs like wichita lineman and seymour karaoke at yeah, the office lounge <laughs> that's right <laughs> Um, and uh it's so funny because it's like he he's you know he this record blew up and and solidified john cougar soon to eventually go by his real name john mellencamp solidified john mellencamp as like the voice of the american midwest the voice of the agricultural interior and without without this album without this single there might not have been Farm Aid. Farm Aid, which was a charity that he that he started, a charity concert series that he co-founded with Neil Young to uh, raise money for Midwest farmers, for Midwest farming families who yeah. were losing their farms due to all kinds of consolidation pressure, and most of that has since happened, and now there's just a whole bunch of consolidated farms out there. Anyway, <laughs> um, no, there there are exceptions. There are certainly exceptions. So he probably would have had to go back to Seymour had this record not been a hit. Um, and but it was a hit, and he became this like the scion of the Midwest. He was the, and, the basically like the troubadour of like 
the flat Midwest towns. Right, exactly. And the 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 love that he got for a place like Seymour earned him the right to not live in Seymour anymore. They allow him to live in Bloomington, mm-hmm. which is the far more cosmopolitan <laughs> college town, uh, 45 minutes, I think, north of Bloomington, uh, of, of Seymour, thereabouts, an hour north hour, of Seymour? Hour, hour north change. of Seymour, yeah. okay. As uh, the crow flies. As the crow flies, <laughs> right? Um, Bloomington, so the Blo- so John Mellencamp has lived outside of Bloomington on Lake Monroe, right? Mm-hmm. In a giant mansion for years and years and years. And he has maintained his Seymour cred by living an hour and a half from Seymour, which is pretty impressive when he could li- live in, you know, Monaco or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, he didn't even go to Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, I know. He Blo- went to Bloomington. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He didn't go that far. Yeah. Bloomington, I mean, he could have 45 minutes further and he would have been in Indianapolis. Yeah. Could have been in a major international airport. Could have gotten to <laughs> Chicago from there. And once you're in O'Hare, man, you can go anywhere. <laughs> So, so we lived in Indiana when we were going to college, but we, it's, we met in Indiana. we met in Indiana. But more than that, um, I think Indiana you you really identify as an Indiana person, like that you because you had your really formative years yeah. there. I went to undergrad and, because and grad school. You were a military kid and moved ar- around a lot when you were young. You you know you don't quite have the same connections to yeah. your hometown. Also, when I say I'm, f- I grew up in Tennessee because I don't have the accents really. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make sense. But my family is all culturally Midwestern. For, right. They're from Minnesota. Exactly. So. And then I was just like a total, you know, I was a, uh, a carpetbagger. I had come to Indiana just to do grad school and get out. But then I fell into this job as a reporter and I became a local reporter for the first time in my life. And I learned how to be a reporter there. And I had to host a statewide radio program called Ask the Mayor, where I interviewed <laughs> the mayors of Bloomington. That was easy because I lived there and I knew what everything was about. Uh, where do we do? Terre Haute. That was tricky. Yeah. Kokomo. That was really tricky. Oh, yeah. Kokomo. Columbus. That was a little easier. It was a little closer. Oh man, that was hard. Uh, so the point is, is that like, and I got to, you know, and I got to travel around all of the Southern half of Indiana, well, all of Indiana really mm-hmm. uh, doing stories and you know, I absolutely fell in love with the state and absolutely, you know, made pilgrimages to Seymour and all of that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a very special place to me. And I, and it was funny, I ended up, my experience of like learning about Indiana informed this whole like course that I designed at, at when I taught at Mercer University mm. where I redesigned about, you know, we called it Macon 101, but the mm. idea was like, well, I tried to kind of think of it as like, how do you get airdropped into a new place a new city, whether you're going to be a reporter there, kid, or if you're going to be a normal person, but you're going to be moving to another city mm-hmm. once you graduate from college. Once you like drop down in a place, you have to find out, well, you know, what's up with this place? Yeah. Who, you know, who's, who, how who's does it work? Charge? Who's Who in charge? Who are the power players? Yeah. What's the history? Where's what's the money important? come from? And yeah. so I, you know, on the first day I would say like, well, the first thing you do is figure out why is there a human settlement here? Like, what, why do people live there? Mm-hmm. And then in Macon, that allowed me to talk about, like, the fall line and ge- geology and blah, 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 blah. And Seymour, you could talk about, like, the railroad crossing and then Jebediah Seymour. And then John Mellencamp. <laughs> who, you know, worked some magic in the legislature to, yeah. you know, to build the the pork barrel upon which the Mellencamp empire was built. <laughs> right. Some 200 years later. And John, John Johnny Cougar wrote this terrific song called Jack and Diane which goes thusly Was it his very first single or it was, it was uh it was his first hit 
But like, um, was the f- off that album? Because that album didn't that album also have like the other songs? Or it has a, did one, like Pink Houses come later? Oh, there's one other famous song on that first album, but I don't want to look it up because I, then I'd have to make an edit to cover up me looking it up. Or they so could you just, could just keep talking. Okay, like I mean, anyway, you keep talking. Yeah, go fine. ahead. I'll I'll look. Oh, yeah. What are we talking about? <laughs> Jack and Diane. Jack and Diane. How's the song go? I am not going to sing it on the internet. That I can tell you right now. <laughs> Little Diddy about Jack and Diane. Two American kids growing up in the heartland. Keep going. Jackie going to be a football star. Diane's Debbie Dawn in the back of Jackie's car because they were doing stuff. Rock on. Yeah. Did you ever see John Mellencamp when you lived in Bloomington? Did you have an encounter with him? No. I several oh, I, several rumored ones. And you know everyone you meet knows someone else who had seen John Mellencamp seen at him, the mall. I or saw something. him several times because I stayed in Bloomington in the summer mm-hmm. and that's when John Mellencamp came out. He doesn't come out during the semesters because he doesn't want to get hassled by frat guys. Mm. In the summer, that's when he comes out to play, and you'd see him. I've saw I saw him a couple of times. I have a very famous story about how he one time told me and my friends that we were out of control, <laughs> um, and I went to I saw him play at Assembly Hall when we were there. Well, not you. You had not come yet. It was just me. I did not exist yet. And no, it was before. It wasn't you, even a glint in your eye. It was before you were an idea. <laughs> yeah, I I used to see him around town all the time in the summer. What does, does he look like, John Mellencamp, or he, does he look like you no, know like he, a like a like a dad in a tracksuit? No. Here's the thing about John Mellencamp in Bloomington, Indiana, is that he looks like fucking John Mellencamp, leather vest, low cut V neck T shirt, chains, silver things, things and dangling. rings. I mean, he looks like he walked off like a rock and roll Hall of Fame tribute concert, but he does not want you to look at him. <laughs> so you have to be like, that is John Mellencamp living legend, but we're going to pretend he's not there because yeah. he does not like to be bothered. Just and wear a tracksuit, dude. Fair it'll, enough. It'll be easier to, yeah. His, were his tips frosted? No. Hmm. His former wife, the supermodel, Elaine Irwin. Then former? No, she's now former. Okay, then current wife. Then, cur- then his, wife. His, his then, then wife, wife how, what we Elaine say. Irwin, used to come grocery shop at the marsh that I worked at. And mm. she was lovely. She was always very nice. Wow. So. What did she get? I don't recall. <laughs> she get like a bunch of frozen fish? <laughs> this is like 2004. A bunch of frozen fish? Come on, something memorable? Don't no, buy, let's go I, with a bunch of frozen fish. <laughs> sure. She was very beautiful, even in her non-supermodel attire yeah. yeah and very kind and much taller than him right well he, that wasn't hard he's not very tall <laughs> yeah he's a he's a he's pocket he's a short king as they say he's a short king wow wow john johnny cougar lived long enough to see short king summer <laughs> and in that we can all be comforted yeah yep so let us return to so this why are we talking about this again? summer ballad uh, that goes a... to the next line yeah. which is the next verse the next stanza yeah. which is Sucking on chili dog. There it is. Outside the taste of freeze. And that's why we're talking about this And song. that's why we're talking about this. I mean, legit, I can't think of a more memorable line in a song about food. I feel like that can't possibly be true, but I'm sure there's a million country songs about beer and whiskey, but. Okay, I'll, so take <laughs> off drink, because there's okay. a lot of memorable songs about drink. Yes. Okay, but a food. <sighs> Certainly a food of the of, of the hot dog variety. Yeah. It, you know what's interesting about it is every time I hear it, I think like, oh, I could go for a chili dog, even mm. though I do not like chili dogs because they're too messy to eat. It's true. But that's not <laughs> a problem with another thing that I really like to consume, which is 
coffee. And it's time now to thank <laughs> Trade Coffee, sponsor of this episode. Uh, you can get a free bag of coffee with any subscription purchase at drinktrade.com slash Adam Show. Now, um, this is not how the folks at Trade Coffee asked me to sell their coffee. This is how I'm choosing, opting to sell their coffee. And I think they're going to be okay with it because it is both flattering to them and true and interesting, which is why I'm going to say it. So the way that like most sort of like thing of the month clubs usually work, you know, what your, your jelly, jelly of the month club, right? Wine. Wine of the, wine of the month club, mm-hmm. or, you know, not all of them, but the way that most such things work where you get a different version of a thing that you like in the mail every month or whatever, most, what most of those businesses have historically done is they buy surplus product, right? So they go around to other you know wholesalers that have leftover bits and bobs of coffee or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, the surplus retailer buys all of that up, they repackage it in some way, and then they try to sell it via uh, via mail order. And it's a, it's a bonus that like, oh, look at this exotic thing that you got in the mail. You don't really find that anymore. Yeah. There's a reason for that because they went out of business. That's like remaindered coffee, man. Okay. Uh, so I'm not naming any specific businesses, but that is a, you know, the, that basic business model model is very common, uh, in the world of like thing of the month subscriptions. I tell you that to establish that trade is absolutely not that at all. That is the complete opposite of what they do. They do not buy coffee. They have no coffee warehouse, nothing like that. Trade coffee is simply a service where what they do is they go out and they sample coffee from independent roasters all over the United States, you know, small independent businesses, some of them quite small, some of them a little bit bigger, but all independent uh, roasters. And they go around, they sample the best and they look for the best stuff, the most interesting stuff and the stuff that would appeal to different tastes as we all have different coffee tastes. That's what the tasters at trade do. And then they mail you a bag of what they think you will like as often as you want it, as, as much coffee as you drink. Um, you know, a lot of flexibility with the subscription plans. And it, it will be a different thing every month, not because they are unloading remaindered product on you, but because the folks at trade are, are curating your experience from amongst all of these local businesses around the country. And I think that that's pretty terrific. And it has introduced me to all kinds of wonderful coffee that I really like. I just went to their website. I told them what kind of coffee I like. They put me on a plan and I get great stuff that surprises and delights me all the time. And I think you should do the same. Get yourself a free bag of coffee with any subscription purchase at Drink Trade dot com slash Adam show. That's drinktrade.com slash Adam show. Thank you trade for supporting the Ragusea pod. Anywho, sucking on chili dog <laughs> outside the tasty freeze. So to that person in Indonesia, we have to explain what a chili dog is. It's a hot dog smothered in chili. Chili con carne. Mm. Right. Okay. So this is why it's, it's just, it's not an accident. Like that this- chili the soup. The soup chili. <laughs> More the stew chili. Because well, yes, if it's yes. a soupy chili, which you'll get on a hot dog sometimes, See, it run, it's, it's, you I get runny chili on your dog. <laughs> I don't eat soup chili. I only eat stew chili, so I don't understand the distinction. <laughs> okay. So it's not an accident that this, this line is such an immortal representation of life in the agricultural interior of the United States, right? Because what is a chili dog? A chili dog is this food item that exists from the collision of mostly Eastern European people, uh, you know, Germanic and, and Slavic people, immigrants who came to the Chicago and its a- uh, areas surrounding, which would include Indianapolis and such. Um, 
so it's a marriage of that kind of Slavic, Germanic, Eastern European sausage culture that gives us the hot dog with Mexican food, with chili con carne, which in this case has to be actual chili con carne or something like it. So not the sort of modern tomato sauce with beans in it. It's um, But like a, a, a meat-based thing. Yeah, a meat, an actual meat, ba- ground, usually ground beef-based thing with some tomato in it. So uh, it's a, it's a, be- a tomato-y fine beef stew that is strewn across this sausage that we call a hot dog that is then eaten inside a, a bun of bread like a sandwich. Hurts so good. Hurts so good is the other famous song on- Appropriate for chili dogs. This album. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, a chili dog can, that'll hurt you at some point so, in the process. So good though. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it on chili dog. That's what a chili dog is. And it's, it's you know, so it's, that's, it's, you couldn't think of something that was more Southern Indiana where you have, you know, all of this Germanic in the case of Mellencamp, you know, or Slavic influence from immigrants who spilled out from Chicago and then down uh, into deeper and deeper areas South of Illinois and Indiana, right? It's a marriage of that. And what Mexican farm laborers were bringing with them from uh, the South. And they met in the middle, which is all of the farmland in Indiana. That's the place in between those two cultural influences. And the chili dog is the food that they created. And so the chili dog is the food in the song Jack and Diane. Yeah. Also, the Tasty Freeze served good ones. Tasty Freeze. Tasty Freeze, I looked into it. Have you? Are you familiar with it? I mean... In that I'm familiar with all of those sort of like Midwest walk up, drive up sort of ice cream, ice cream places, soft serve ice cream places, right? Yeah, but then they would also have food like like Becker's in Columbus. Oh yeah, that was a family owned place uh, that belonged to a, the a family we were friends with, and oh, great place in Columbus, Indiana. They made their own root beer. They made their own root that's beer. Really good. Yeah, and their onion rings are real good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyways, but Tasty Freeze, unlike Becker's, was Tasty Freeze was a pretty sizable chain. It's kind of in its heyday. It was up there with the Dairy Queen and with um, Carvel, um, the, the major sort of ice cream chains that that, that started in the United States in <coughs> the mid twentieth century. Back in the day. Uh, frozen custard the United States government would like you to know. Well, I'm sure that it's the same genre of restaurant. (laughs) Fun fact, soft serve, which is what all these restaurants are, like it's it's a soft serve ice cream product. Soft serve usually often does not have enough fat in it to qualify as ice cream as defined by the United States government. Uh, Um, Interesting. And the thing that I can't, couldn't, I can't figure out from my my research Mm -hmm. is like, why is soft serve ice cream often really technically ice milk, right? Like why why do they use so little fat in the product? And the best answer I can come up with is that they just don't have to. Yeah, it's because, very light. Yeah, um, you have to have a certain amount of fat in hard ice cream to keep it soft enough when it goes into the freezer. Mm. But soft ice cream never gets that cold and therefore you don't need as much fat to lubricate it essentially. And therefore it can be a little lighter, as you mm-hmm. say, and probably cheaper yes. uh, uh, for the producer. So that's probably the reason why a place like the Tasty Freeze likely was a relatively low-fat product that didn't mm-hmm. technically qualify as ice cream. But it was soft-serve ice cream. And Tasty Freeze is one – like the Tasty Freeze – Tasty Freeze is – it was founded by one of the guys who came from Dairy Queen. And Dairy Queen and Carvel and Tasty Freeze all claim to have in- invented the soft-serve ice cream 
freezer as we know it that mm-hmm. made soft serve chains possible. And we should explain that distinction, right? Because like when you initially churn ice cream, because this is a food program, okay? <laughs> so, well, I mean, we just did the video um, about um, Chris Farm, and they talked. Benji talked about making ice cream. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and the the machine and the the mix that you put in the way it works. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we just we just went there, and so you guys saw an ice cream making a soft serve making machine where you just mm. pour mix into this machine that spins constantly, and it's mm. very cold, but not as cold as a freezer, but very cold. And what it does is it. Um, it, uh, it churns the ice cream thereby, thereby whipping air into it and freezes it to a soft serve temperature at the same time. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is that you can never turn it off, right? Um, or if you turn it off, it ceases to be ice cream and you have to turn it back into ice cream again. It cannot be stored soft serve. Mm-hmm. It can, it, it is ephemeral. It must be con- sold and consumed at the point of sale, right? Uh, at the, it must be manufactured and consumed at the point of sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what kind of makes a place like the Tasty Freeze so special. And the other thing about it is that it's like ice cream is an old product that, you know, people in places like Seymour, Indiana probably would have enjoyed for, you know, a hundred years. But the thing about ice cream is, is that you only get soft serve texture upon initial churning with traditional churning. Mm-hmm. It's soft for this very brief moment after you churn it and you can eat it a little bit, but it's going to melt really fast. Like you have to then transfer it to the freezer. Mm-hmm. So that kind of soft serve texture was just an incredible rarity that you would only get as a reward for having churned damn ice cream yourself (laughs) or knowing someone who did the work of churning the ice cream themselves, right? And now because of people like the Tasty Freeze, Jebediah Tasty Freeze, um, they suddenly had soft serve ice cream that was affordable and accessible to even like, you know, dumb Mm -hmm. high school kids in Seymour, Indiana. Yeah. I'm sorry. My eye will not stop watering. That's okay because I have to to reset the camera. So here, break. So that's the Tasty Freeze, where Jack and Diane, two you know popular kids in high school, go to get a chili dog on that day, and they're they're like making out, and Jack suggests that they go back behind a tree to um, do some heavy do, petting. Do some heavy petting. <laughs> I believe I the what I love about this line is the the verb that Mellencamp uses to describe the act of taking off one's pants as being dribble off. Wow. <laughs> I'm realizing that I thought I knew all the lyrics to the song. You usually know all the lyrics to I songs. Do. That's I... why I invited you here. <laughs> I'm good at singing along to the radio. <laughs> here, I'll get the I'll get the lyrics for us. Okay, okay. hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on. Suck on chili dog outside the tasty freeze. Uh, yeah, Diane I, sitting on Jackie's lap, got, got her hands, hands between her yeah. knees. Go ahead, you do it. Jackie, Jackie says, says, Hey Diane, let's run off behind a shade tree. Dribble off those Bobby Brooks, let me do what I please. Dribble off. That's not that's not his pants. That's her pants. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what Bobby Brooks are? Are they pants or is it? Huh? I thought this was, this was another thing I thought you would know. I thought you would know. That's a famous iconic brand of ladies pants. Is it now? I, I have no idea. I'm just, I'm speculating. Let's see. Um, let's, let's use the internet. Bobby Brooks <laughs> pants. There they are. That's no, no. Oh, I don't. Bobby know. Brooks. Oh, there you go. No, no. It's it's yeah. with an I E. There you yeah. go. Bobby Brooks pants available at Dollar General. That's why they look like that. They didn't look like that when Diane wore them. <laughs> well, they were sort of proto leggings, I guess. No, no. they were not sweaty. Oh, they're like swishy pants. Yeah. Yeah, linen swishy pants or something. This was 1982 that wow. he wrote this, which is the year of our birth. The point is the year of our birth. Exactly. <laughs> the point is Jack is dribbling off Diane's pants. He's going to touch and, her in her no-no places. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> As they would have said back show then. Show <laughs> us on the doll where Jackie touched you. God. Anyway. Anyways. So it's a good, wholesome song about chili dogs and teen sex. From Indiana, <laughs> the land of basketball, where Dribble Off probably would have had special resonance. Yes. And then the way he justifies them... Um, you know, sacrificing their honor to each other is he says, hey, you know, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. No, that's an allusion to what comes later. That's the verses are building you up this story of like idealistic children because the first verse is them like just having the great food and no responsibilities and going off and boning behind a tree. Then we get the chorus, which is foreshadowing. Then the next verse is... See, you can tell that I'm an English dwarf. Go ahead. The next verse is where he starts to think about the future because he's like, hey, maybe we should like make a go at this. We could run off to the city. and Which would be like Indianapolis probably or, or Chicago, or, Chicago yeah. or if they were really ambitious, New York. Yeah. Right. I'm going to guess it was Chicago. Um, and then she's kind of being like, ah, you're dreaming too big here. And he's like, yeah, probably. And so then we get the chorus again, which is foreshadowing. And then, then we get the breakdown, which is honestly like deeply resonant and kind of brutal lines about what it means to move from like young adulthood to adulthood where he said, so this is, if you're not familiar with the song, you should go listen to it. But, oh, let it rock, let it roll. Let the Bible Belt come and save my soul. Holding on to 16 as long as you can. Changes coming around real soon. Make us women and men. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Basically, like, this good moment is going to end, but we still have a whole fucking lifetime ahead of us, and it's not going to be as good as this. <laughs> Which is just like... <laughs> well, the, the great thing is that I think both of our interpretations work and p- might even have both been intended. I think this could Mine be a, a deliberate double meeting. No, that he says he he goads her into premarital sex <laughs> by saying, hey, like life is this life is long and we're going to be miserable later. We're having a great time now. Let's just go do it. You sounded so much like yourself just then trying to oh. convince me to do something. Uh, that was hilarious. Well, <laughs> did it work? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, so, yeah. I, no, I think it's really interesting that it moves back and forth. Like, the verse, the verses take you through the emotional, but the chorus kind of cuts them, cuts the idealism at the end, but the... Okay, the chorus has actually become more hopeful as you get to the end because the breakdown makes it sound horrible, like we're, it's all going to be terrible as adults, but then it's like, but life goes on. At the end, it's got kind of a hopeful bent to the chorus, maybe. <laughs> the other, I mean, what I, what I find really meaningful about the chorus and indeed the whole song is how literally true it is. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. It's like, so... It, wouldn't be Adam Magusiapod without some over- existential oh, dread. Well, I was going to say overly generalized pop science. <laughs> Hit me. <laughs> okay, some overly generalized Adam Magusiapod pop science. So there's lots of research indicating that um, uh, I was told something true by my high school theater teacher. So I had a theater teacher in high school whose name was Ruth and I forget her last name because I went to like a hippy dippy alternative <laughs> school where we called our, 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 our teachers by their first names. And so she was Ruthie and she was this kind of like kooky older lady who had been, she said, the acting teacher to Jonathan Frakes, who became 
Commander Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation, because we're He's, both from Pennsylvania, yeah. Well, uh, the same tiny region of Pennsylvania. Indeed, yes, yes exactly, so. yes. So, call me. Um, <laughs> Adam would love nothing more than to become friends with Jonathan Frakes, if you're watching. That is <laughs> basically true. So, um, what Ruthie told us one day is we, we, we were like, we were because she was the oldest of the teachers, and we were just a bunch of young idiots, and we were asking her questions about getting old, and she said, you know, the great thing about getting old is that you just, your, your, your lows are not ever as low as that ever again. Like you just, you, you get control of yourself. You don't feel those horrible pits of despair that you get when you're young. But the bad, the worst thing is, is that the same thing happens on the top end of the emotional spectrum, that you can't feel pleasure as intensely as you can as you get older. Your emotions just kind of like narrow and even out and you just eventually get to the kind of a hmm state the older you get. That's what Ruthie told us. And Wow, I'm sorry. I think Ruthie was experiencing a low that day. She was, oh, she was the best though, you know? The funny thing what I loved about her was she, you know how you hear about when like a government is acquiring land by eminent domain to like build a highway or something and they promise they're going to move someone's house, like an old farmhouse or something. They promise they're going to move a house from one place to another to build a highway there. And you're like, whose house is that? It was Ruthie's house. And I was, I I went there one time, but it was just this like creakety old farmhouse. And they put it on a truck and they moved it. Yeah. And they moved it to this like subdivision mm-hmm. in, in state outside of state college, Pennsylvania. It was mm-hmm. the craziest thing. That was, that was, that was Ruthie. But anyway, so the thing about this is what she told us is like a hundred percent right says science. That's like what tons of studies of like, you know, emotions in elderly people show that you're just emotional range narrows as you get older. Um, and I've found that to be true. Haven't you? Like I, I, it's wonderful that my low, I don't have the just like, you know, crushing lows that I used to get, you know, that's wonderful that I don't feel crazy anymore and on the edge of hysteria all the time. That's great. But like, I also, I'm not sure I, the goods, the good stuff feels as good to me now as it used to, you know? Um, I think that's entirely false <laughs> because I have seen the way that you crumble into delighted little bits over the things the kids do. Well, that's because I have literally never seen you like you're so giddy when they do something funny or cute or silly or even kind of infuriating. It's just, yeah, uh, yeah. And I have seen tears squirt out of your eyes like a faulty water fountain when you are like touched by something remember when the little one came home with a school project and it said i think the best job is dad and then it talked all about how how good like being a dad i don't have big emotions anymore he says It's it's all about like it's all about like stimulus to response ratio, okay? So like my my stimulus to response ratio has indeed, you know, like plummeted. Like I get less stimulus out of no, I get less of a response out of the same stimulus, but like having children is such an incredibly intense stimulus that you can be like the the you can be the like cold most cold-hearted bastard and it's still going to move you. Because it's such a profound experience. I think it happens to you enough that I would say that I don't think that's entirely true, that you don't have high highs. Uh, Okay. (laughs) 
You the do eu- feel things. The euphoric, like, I'm on drugs-like highs of, of well, being a teenager. Y- yes, that doesn't happen because that's not real. That's exactly. not real happiness. I understand. Yeah. That's the thrill of living in this case. That's, okay. the te- that's what the they te- felt going back behind the tree <laughs> next to the Tasty Freeze to dribble off their Bobby Brooks to, <laughs> to have their chili talk. They ate the chili dog before they before got they naked. Got there. That's fine. So imagine all this happening with like chili con carne in between their teeth. You know, it really in their braces. It really brings new meaning to the line sucking on a chili dog. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! I'm so sorry. I'm so, oh, uh, time out. <laughs> where are you gonna? Where? How? How could you get a podcast co-host that good? How? How is that? How did I stumble into this? You, this you, good fortune. You have to nurture them over the course of like 18 years of love relationship. That's true. You could do that. Or you could find your next collaborator with Indeed, sponsor Holy of this episode. Shit. They said I couldn't do it, but I did it. This is either this is gonna be the one plane of the, is on the runway. This is gonna be one of those episodes where people in the comments are like, "I love the ones when Lauren comes on and everything gets crazy," and then the other half of people are like, "I, I hate, hate it." <laughs> they just talk about nothing. Why are we here? <laughs> and to all of those people, I say thank you for watching. <laughs> well, That's not what I was about to say. Anyway. You're, you're uh, indeed. Oh, sure, yeah. Indeed. Uh, indeed, which is the best place to attract, interview, and hire talent for your next business uh, or, or your current business. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Ragusea. No reason to spend hours on multiple job sites looking for people to hire. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. 81% of U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on indeed.com each month according to ComScore. In the minute that I'm going to be talking about Indeed, the averages would predict that 16 hires will be made on Indeed. More than 3 million businesses use it worldwide. With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. It's according to Indeed's US data. And the best part is that Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have have requirements. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Ragusea. That offer is good for a limited time. Just go to indeed.com slash Ragusea. Support the program by saying that you heard about it on the Ragusea pod, the weird one with the lady where they talked about the song. Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Get yourself a co-host as good as mine. Terms and it's not a dating site, it's a, it's, a, it's a hiring site, a professional hiring site. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. I did it. <laughs> you did. Well done. And well done to Indeed, sincerely, for supporting the Ragusea pod, which is a, a niche product and could not stand on its own two legs. So thank you, the good people at Indeed. <laughs> All right. So Jack and Diane. So you were that you were accepting you were at least accepting the notion that there is a certain spark of living a certain joie de vivre only possessed by people whose like you know frontal cortexes have not fully right. developed right this is about this is a song about teenagers who are dumb and horny <laughs> and they have no idea what's coming the monotony and hard work of what is coming and the thing about it is not just that they're dumb but that they're popular right like they're like the most they're he's the foot J- jackie's the football star 
and she's the debutante. Well, like they're the most popular, most beautiful kids in well, school. Well, sir, I don't know if you know this fun fact. Mm-hmm. John Mellencamp says, and we just have to believe him. I don't know if he's a liar or not, but apparently the first version, the first draft of this song, Jack was an African-American kid and the mm-hmm. song was about an interracial relationship, right. which really changes the like, we're having fun in our little bubble right now, but once the world figures it out, it's all going to be bad. Um, the song certainly works on that level and does, that's great. Um, but then apparently- I just don't believe it. The record label said like, eh, let's make it a you know, football star so it's like relatable to everybody. And that I could believe because record labels suck. <laughs> the, pro- the problem is that there is a demo of this song, like an early songwriting demo that you can find on the internet mm-hmm. where Mellencamp has the first verse really as recorded pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then he has the bridge lyrics, the let it rock, let it roll, let the Bible belt save my soul. He has those, but he sings them to the tune of the verse. And then that's all he has. Right, but theoretically he could have... That could have been the demo that he like. He wrote. He did a demo for the record label before he went into the studio. Oh, him and Tom Gaiman like cut it in Miami, and then the A and R man said, "No, you got to get the yeah, yeah." Perhaps it seems a little packed and self congratulatory. And knowing John Mellencamp's politics as I do, I could see why he would want to come down on that side of history. Um, Which is, for the record, the side of history that we both are on or want to be on or think is the right side of history, right? Like we're not criticizing him for wanting to be on the right side of history. Um, But we are potentially criticizing him for engaging in some stolen valor. Or, yeah, just retconning a little. Yeah. A little retconning. Um, But also, I. I'm going to choose to believe John Mellencamp because I have no reason to believe he lied. Believe artists. Sure. Um, So, yeah, rock and roll stars, famously truthful. (laughs) I know, truthful (laughs) gentlemen. So, yeah. Um, Well, so when we were listening to this song in the car and we were just like, falling all over ourselves about like, oh, this is a really good song. We had also eaten a lot of ice cream at that moment. So we had just gone to DQ. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Tasty Freeze no longer has, apparently has four remaining locations. Oh. Um, but we were just talking about like how I don't know if the particular feeling of being a Midwestern small town youth that had been captured in a major cultural event, Mm -hmm. really. Um, I mean, I guess Hoosiers, but even then that was high school kid. Well, this is high school kids. Look at me talking in circles. Yeah. It just, they must have, I feel like the teens of Indiana must have felt really seen. Right. So if you grow up in a farm town and like people who live actual, you know, who live city and suburban lives think they know farm country because like, yeah, there's like some farms mixed in with suburbia. like you, That haven't been turned into subdivisions yeah, yet. <laughs> you know not farm country until you have like gone to, you know, far south Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. or far or southern, far south Indiana. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like it's, it's such a different world and kids have these really limited experiences where... The whole thing where the normal path of life, where youth is more exciting than adulthood, mm-hmm. is even more exaggerated because- um, 
Well, because even, even kids growing up in Nowheresville, Indiana, have a dramatic childhood. Because a childhood is always dramatic, and b the the, the community builds drama around the high school and its football yeah. team, and you know they all in it's it's everyone is a star in their little town, mm. you know, in that high school. And then every adult has their stories about having been the star, right? Exactly. Back then. And, and then now, but then they just farm <clears throat> the rest of their lives. Well, and especially when you consider that they were family farms. It's the, you know, a suburban kid might want to get out, but have to, st- but end up staying. Yeah. But like a lot of these I'll, kids have to. Yeah, stay. there's no, there's no other option because if you don't stay and work the farm, the farm will cease to be, and yeah. we need, we need your labor. And yeah, that's what that scene in the first Star Wars movie is about. It's about a real thing where. Mm-hmm. Is Luke? I, I need. It's, I can't let you go during harvest. Harvest was when, was when I need you the most. <laughs> it was this yeah. actually? Oh God! Did I just do that? I've seen. I've seen the movie at okay. some point. In my I know, life. but I did. I just. I just held boy up, made me watch it. In I college. just held up a bit of George Lucas writing as like a true slice of human interaction. <laughs> well, give credit where it's due. Yeah. I guess give him his points where he can score them. There you go. Okay. Um, yeah, what you said when we were talking about it in the car that I thought was so beautiful was that, you, you know, no one, no one had written songs about kids like Jack and Diane before that had been hits on the radio. And to hear a song about someone like them would have made them feel like, oh, wow, my life is worth remarking upon too. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, and I think that's why he endured because he, like... He captured this lightning in a bottle with Jack and Diane. And, you know, you could say about John Mellencamp that, like, he played that hit all night long. But, like, he managed to do it again in a f- several different ways that were new and different. Like, yeah. and pink all ge- houses and small towns. And all and generally and- subversive. Like, not, yeah. not what they were on the surface. Yeah. You know, generally making very deep criticisms about economic inequality and stuff like, like that. Yeah. And racial inequality. Really catchy, um, radio-friendly songs that were really pretty lyrically complex yeah. and had a real message all around the same theme, but in different ways and in ways that I think made people who felt like the world didn't see them, made them feel seen. Yeah. You know, in, in, a, in a world where in, the, in a country where in the United States where like um, media had been historically dominated from the coasts. Right. With and like Chicago thrown in there for, you know, a little bit of yeah, a flavor from to, the farm. Yeah, yeah, Chicago, to Illinois. The Midwest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so to, for the, for kid for kids in the interior, especially in farm towns to see themselves in a song would have made them feel like their life was worth singing about too. And they loved him for that. And when we lived in Indiana, everyone there, regardless of, you know, whether they agreed with his, 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 his pro democratic party politics, like mm-hmm. they, they loved him. They loved him for that. And yeah, they felt that the fact that he talked about farm work and farmers and that it, that transcended their belief that Bill Clinton sucked, you know, yeah. like they were like, it doesn't matter who we voted for because he's for us. I don't care what politician he's for. He's for us. And like, yeah. in that way, I think he probably managed to bring more people along to some of his ways of thinking indeed. because he spoke to them in their language. More bees with honey. Indeed. Yeah. But I would like to argue that I think it's there's an instructive example here that all of us can take in our own lives going forward. How can we be better people when we walk out of this room? Um, 
if you're if you're someone who gets kind of frustrated by like um you know, you know Disney or whatever media companies like kind of shoehorning diversity into their products like you know making a a a black Ariel or whatever if you're the kind of person who is frustrated by that but at the same time like you have been you were gratified by the recognition that you got from like a John Mellencamp song or something like a John Mellencamp song where that they saw you and your life and thought thought that it was worth putting in a song that lots of people would hear. Think about how that made you feel and realize that that's what's at play when other groups of people- don't look like you. (laughs) Yeah, other groups of people who have also not historically been seen, what it could mean to them to for someone to say, hey, you you matter enough. People like you matter enough that I'm going to put you in a movie or I'm going to write a song about you or I'm going to publish your song. And mm. I think that's a good lesson for us all to remember. Shall we leave it there? Sure. Okay. Thanks for uh, rocking the Ragusia pod for, for this one. Um, <laughs> Thanks for coming on this journey with us. <laughs> so another thing I want to say is, um, so a lot of people might've seen the cruise farm video where I went out to this local dairy farm, this like beloved local dairy farm in Knoxville called mm-hmm. cruise farm. And the guy there, Majit Bati, who runs the farm um, Everybody loves Majit because he's like, he's too, I mean, he's too the camera born, though he doesn't realize it. <laughs> and he's um, so nice. He's so nice and charismatic and handsome and like, and handsome in, handsome in a specific way that looks good, that reads on camera, which is a specific thing. Um, and and he, he's just, and he's like, he's like such a giant, like dairy nerd. His, his wealth of knowledge is enormous. Um, and it's, he's just awesome. And at the same time, like he comes he comes from this like curious kind of cultural background where he's like, he's, 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 I think he was born in America, but he's of Indian heritage. His, his parents are Indian and, um, you know, grew up with like in, in Indian lacto-vegetarian culture in mm-hmm. Indian dairy food, which is mm-hmm. extremely intense and awesome and beloved. And he really grew up loving all of that stuff. And then like m- married this white girl from, you know, East Tennessee, um, and therefore married into the, her family business, which was this farm. And, and he has since become like the, you know, the f- beloved son of that family. And, and his, so his, and, and his, his whole kind of cultural perspective is fascinating. And I love this guy. So I want to just like do a podcast with Majit and we just want to call it like ask the dairy farmer or something like that, you know, or, or ask Manjeet, whatever the hell you want to ask. It's, it's an AMA with the handsome guy from the, 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 the ice cream video. Okay. Is what we're going to do. So um, please, if you have something for that, put Manjeet in the subject line, M-A-N-J-I-T uh, or your best attempt, I'll recognize it. Uh, put Manjeet into the subject line and give me uh, just a text for this. I don't need, I don't need, uh, you know, Video. videos or audio files. Cause I'm just going to read him some questions. So you can just write up a t- tiny little question for Manjeet to put that in the subject line, send it to ask Adam questions at gmail.com. Ask Adam questions at gmail.com. Um, thank you for being here, honey. You're the best. Thanks for having me. Um, and, uh, make good choices about like, uh, who you go behind a tree with. That's right. You could end up on their podcast in 15, 20 years. <laughs> go suck on a chili dog. <laughs> Talk to you next time. Ah! Oh, God. God, it fell. <laughs> Woo! It's not as heavy as the other one, I no. guess. <laughs>